Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 231, and thanks for tuning back in. Today, we're going to be talking about why buying and selling companies is our barbaric sport and what you can be doing to practice the game, understand the rules, and how to better study the opponent so that way you're set up to play the Super Bowl of your career as a business owner to the best of your abilities, and you'll be satisfied with the outcome and the effort you put in because you have no regrets. Today on the show... We have Elliot Holland, who is the managing partner of Guardian Due Diligence. Elliot has spent over 10 years of experience executing middle market deals as an entrepreneur who spent his own money for due diligence. He fully understands the challenges in executing good deals and avoiding lemons. He's a Harvard Business School trained, seasoned, buy-side advisor who spent most of a decade as an independent sponsor slash business buyer before starting Guardian. Since 2009, Elliot has worked with and for some of the nation's best family offices, independent business buyers, and management consulting firms. He began his career in the strategy practice at Accenture and then moved on to work at Lynx Partners, the Watermill Group, Ellsworth Partners, and Spartan Capital Partners. The firms he's worked for has completed billions of dollars in transactions and has successfully bought and scaled over 57 private, primarily owner-operated businesses. He literally has experience on both sides of the table, and like any game, especially the Super Bowl, there are years of practice that go into practicing the game, studying the rules and the strategies of the game, and then studying all the various opponents. And the reason this is important for you is because Elliot is a hired hitman for buyers that are trying to go in, assess deals, assess pricing, assess terms, and to find the gotchas that are in the middle of the deal that could lead to a surprise that would significantly impact the price that was paid by a buyer. And why this is relevant to you is because if you're listening in and you're planning on buying a business or growing for years and then selling, this is a way to get a deep dive into the conversations that happen around a deal so that way you can study the rules and then start implementing practices to better set yourself up for that Super Bowl of buying or selling a business. When the stakes are high, people have a tendency to lie, cheat, and deceive. Doesn't mean that everybody is, but it means it's a thing, and professional buyers know how to go spot that and then either deal with it, cancel the deal, reduce the price, change the terms and conditions. Regardless, they're playing a game, and you need to know how to play it so that way you can go in with all your team, all the practice, and optimize the deal and the Super Bowl of your career as a business owner. If you want the full playbook, go check out the Intentional Growth course. Go to arcona.io and there's a whole bunch of material on everything that we're talking about in a way that makes sense. It's digestible and actionable and you won't regret it. We'll give you your money back if you do not think that it was worth the time and the money that you spent. So without further ado, here's Elliot and how to play the barbaric sport of mergers and acquisitions. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises 
that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Elliot, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing good. This is going to be fun. We were just talking about how we have a lot of common uh, connections. I saw you, my friend Walker Dybul interviewed you. You've been on Bigger yeah. Pod, Bigger Pockets podcast, and uh, we had a good friend uh, Tyler introduce us. And yes. um, we are in the world of buying and selling companies, and you're at the nucleus, which is the you know the funnest part. It, there's no real challenges in due diligence. You know, it's all easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah simple. Simple, like right? Yeah, yeah. Even you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no need for a, a a deal room or a vault or like documents or anything like that, right? Nothing. You can trust everybody. They're all professionals: lawyers, <laughs> accountants, buyers, and sellers. You know, they're everybody all. Everybody like, knows exactly what everybody's doing. It's super coordinated, right? Efficient markets information is shared completely between all parties. It's 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 a hundred percent known. So before we get into uh, how everything we just said is complete BS and we're right. going to unpack why, what really matters, why don't you give the, the listeners a little bit of a backdrop of uh, your journey, how you got to where you are, because it's uh, a pretty interesting uh, ride that I've uh, just observed online as I was doing some uh, digging in, but I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So um, I love the phrase, I got it honestly. So both my parents were um, CPAs and financial consultants. So I decided to go a different route, engineering out of undergrad, um, but then found myself in sort of strategy consulting. Got into Harvard Business School, and then a mentor kind of introduced me to private equity. And so I quit my job early, worked at a search fund, doing an acquisition screen, used that as sort of a hunting license at, at HBS during a tumultuous time. It was right after Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers fell. So, like, Ooh. if you can even imagine the finance talent in my <laughs> class, I was I was like number three hundred and seventy six in the private equity line, and I just out hustled everybody. So, I, I landed an internship at a private equity firm here in Atlanta, and then leveraged that to get a full time job in Boston at a group called the Watermill Group, amazing sort of family office private equity group that's been around for a very long time, um, focused on industrials just great folks. And so my whole life was in Atlanta though. So I, I just finished the best business school in the world and I'm a two and a half hour flight, almost three hour flight from everything I love in Atlanta. And so I, I, I made a decision to come back and that was the impetus I needed to start being entrepreneurial. So I started a independent sponsor, private equity firm with a mentor, uh, Ellsworth Partners. We looked at deals two to $8 million in EBITDA primarily sellers, retiring, a lot of broker deals, some proprietary ones as well, um, value buys, finding companies that had issues with concentration or sort of geographical limitations and kind of structuring deals around that. A couple years into that, my business partner effectively retired, which it kind of stunk for me, but like, I love the fact that he retired. Like, that's what we all want to do. Like, you know, those guys that are still in the game, you know, like in the hospital bed and heading out and you're kind of like, I, that that wasn't really the example I wanted. So I, I guess I did have a mentor and he did do a thing. So I rolled out and did my own private equity independent sponsor firm called Spartan Capital. I looked at deals about the same size. And um, around 2017, I changed my model. And 
I knew that it was very tough to find advisors in the lower middle market. I knew that very few people knew how to do deals under $3 million in EBITDA with any sort of quality. People were scared of them. I knew that, you know, hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the numbers are, but all the baby boomers that are retiring, the, the numbers of these businesses that will trade hands is enormous. And I felt there was a need for a sort of boutique buy side M&A advisory firm to help family offices, independent sponsors and acquisition entrepreneurs execute deals, primarily focusing on due diligence for now, but sort of expanding to a full suite of buy side M&A services. So that's in a nutshell, my path. And really, really no challenges along the way, just smooth no. sailing. You got <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll cut easy, the sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. Easy peasy. Yes. Yeah. And show's easy over. Easy like 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, show's over, folks, and all. <laughs> so Elliot, there's a, a bunch of things that you've already touched on that I'd love to unpack a little bit. Um, and then and then we can dive into a lot of the stuff that you're seeing on the buy side and we can just take this wherever you want to go. But, you know, so in the, the show and the, the online course and bootcamp that we, in-person bootcamp that we teach, we talk about the three different exit, or I'm sorry, in principle three, we talk about the five major exit options and we just bucketed them into five big uh, buckets, Elliot. Yep. Internal, ESOPs, private equity, strategic and acquisition entrepreneur. And you touched on, private equity, family office, and uh, you talk about independent sponsors. So maybe just in your definition, you can kind of break down the just the overall differences in from your vocabulary of private equity, sure. family office, and independent sponsor. Yep. Um, so private equity is what I call institutional capital, meaning people have raised money from pension funds. The, the biggest pots of money in the nation slash world are the investors in private equity funds. They're typically, you know, 20 million, 50 million, 100 million, a billion dollars huge. And they hire the absolute best talent from Wall Street, top three business schools to help them buy companies. They have uh, committed capital sitting, waiting for them to invest. And they are the most sort of active, um, hungry sort of buyers that are out there. They make a lot of money and they're really good at what they do. Family offices also buy companies, but family offices are typically someone in the lineage of a family sold a business most often, um, or has sort of built up enough money where there's a real job to invest the money of that family. And that's a family office, and, but it can be as big as like the Rockefellers or the Carnegie's family office, um, Zuckerberg's family office, but it could also be, you know, 10 manufacturing company owners that sold last generation in your town. Mm -hmm. And then an independent sponsor is a, typically it's a trained professional who understands deals, may have worked at a private equity firm, mezzanine shop, corporate development, something of that nature that now is endeavoring to go find companies for sale and sort of raise capital deal by deal. And so that's how I separate those three. And then so your independent sponsor, like the acquisition entrepreneur and the buy them build, like Walker Dival kind of thought process. So yes, the fourth, and I, I separate it this way. I think in general, and this is not exact because I talked to a lot of independent sponsors and acquisition entrepreneurs. I talked to one this morning that was an HBS alum. So clearly not lack of experience, but generally, the acquisition entrepreneur is probably on average 
more of a mid-career person who, you know, Walker Dibel reads his book or there's a bunch of classes, Carl Allen, Roland Frazier, he might take something like that or just kind of is tired of the rat race and says, I think I can buy a business and I'd rather do that than work a job. And so there's typically a difference of familiarity and um, history with the deal process between those two entities. Mm -hmm. It's a really good way to break it down. And even with the family offices, like a family office could invest in a private equity firm part of their right. portfolio, or they could just yes. buy the company and skip the general partner. Right. I mean, like, so there's That's different it. ways. And I think, you know, the reason I wanted to set that groundwork, Elliot, is because everybody wants something different with a deal. And I'm just going to like, I, I want to th- throw this one concept across and then sure. I want to get into how when you're on the buy side, the purpose of the deal is going to be different and how that's going to impact the purchase price, the deal structure. And I think a lot of the stuff that you've got a lot of uh, experience in and then how that is also then reflected in, in due diligence. But so this concept is Elliot, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on it is we break on, we break out valuations because, you know, entrepreneurs get so freaking confused and it's like, you know what? The reality is the value of your business, the multiple is going to be applied to your EBITDA, but it's just going to be based on the risk of your cash flow, the future risk, right. discounted yes. cash flow, or just the intrinsic financial valuation is based on the risk of your cash flow. And then sure. what I like to say is like, then there's this other transaction value that is the buyer and the seller. And then there's the purpose of the deal. So like right. you could have it in it, but it starts at the financial valuation. Like it's not some mystical, you know, thing that's grabbed out of thin air. It starts at this risk of the cash flow, the intrinsic right. value. And then right. you might pay a premium because the buyer needs a customer base, a location or something, or you might even discount it for estate planning purposes. Yeah. But it starts yes. with, the financial valuation. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. That's it. And valuation in on the lower, lower middle market, kind of, I call it Main Street Plus sometimes. <laughs> plus. <I love> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's an art and a science. You know, I can tell you the multiples on 35 different industries based on 10 years of looking at thousands of deals, right? I could also do a DCF for each one to be more accurate. I could also tell you, you know, on deals under, you know, 2 million, definitely under 1 million, you're probably paying three to six times. Yeah. And so, <laughs> a little bit more frothy in your neck of the woods. No. <laughs> yeah. And the market, you know, at times, if you're, if you're, look, I, I, I told people all the time, I don't know how to spell six, but, you know, people, people are paying those things. And I like your concept because that's where you start. And then there's, I think, the added thing I would toss in there is also structure. So you could pay more, pay less, and then you could pay it at close or over time. And those are all ways to adjust the fundamental value of the business based on the consistency of the cash flows. But there's also risk sharing, right? I think that's the piece that may have been missing. And it's funny, my, my friends have over time <laughs> called me a risk mitigator, which I, I think I got that honestly too, but sort of you're essentially transferring, say the deal is a $5 million deal, you're transferring $5 million of risk from the owner to the buyer in this purchase agreement document that's gonna write up the terms of how that's gonna happen and in the pricing structure of the deal. So, you know, as the owner, day before deal, you own the $5 million of risk because if all your customers leave, you don't have 5 million bucks. You sell that business, now that buyer is holding that $5 million risk. 
So let's take this in in those layers and unpack this because you know well, where we're going to end up is in the due diligence process and like things to look for, things to help you know prep even years in advance. Because this is not about selling; it's about being ready and or buying. Because a lot of a lot of people to get to the enterprise value that they eventually want might have to go acquire. And so, right. but you know, just in your in going back to your concept, Elliot, is you got so you got enterprise value with a purchase price. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's the, the, you know, the purpose of the deal, which based on the three, four uh, buyers that you rep, you know, you talked about, or you represent the purpose of the deal is going to be completely different. So yes. uh, I'd like to take the purpose of the deal and kind of walk through the different uh, buyers and how that works. And then also when you talked about share and risk, and this is the, I think this is a great topic for today's episode is that you can get to the enterprise value, which is that purchase price. But if right. I said to you, I'm going to buy your company for five million dollars, and it's going to be over a hundred years at negative interest rate, like, okay, yep. <laughs> so yep. like that's not that that's you know sharing risk the other direction. So maybe just yeah. and that's deal structure, and we get into due diligence and how due diligence might impact the deal structure. So maybe just talk about the purpose of the deal first. So why are people buying price. companies? Yeah. Well, so for private equities, because you have to put money to work and that's the asset class you chose to invest in. And so you, you signed up. I am a private equity investor from two to $10 million in EBITDA in these three industries. I don't do stuff outside of that. That's what I do. I want to beat everybody else at doing it. That's what you do. If you are a family office, you have an allocation of capital. So every $100, you know, 50 to 70 will be in public market stocks. You know, 10 to 20 will be in real estate. The rest will be in alternatives. Like you said, alternatives will include, I might be a family office and invest in private equity fund. I may invest in an independent sponsor. I may invest in a company directly. The purpose would be to a couple of things. So the purpose in the family office is probably the most wide, which is just a function of sort of, if you think about the complexities of a family, it can be to, to absolute return can be part of it. It can also be around generational wealth transfer. So the second or third generation may need a business to run that may be different than the business that was sold. So that may be it. The other thing may be a lot of family offices have done great in public markets, great in real estate, and now they want to venture out into private equity. And so they may do a deal to kind of train themselves and whatnot. So those are sort of popular purposes for family offices. Independent sponsors are typically lean, mean deal executing machines. They've sort of learned how to consummate deals and feel confident enough to both raise capital and and, and, and due diligence simultaneously. So they have large capital relationships. They're looking for maximum return as well, but typically I would say subject to their own personal constraints, right? So these are people that are putting money into deals they, they haven't like raised their hand like in the same way like i do deals two to ten million dollars i want keeping a little smart. open right <laughs> yeah which is great and then acquisition entrepreneurs are, are are oftentimes sort of aspiring independent sponsors to an extent right people who are sort of buying one company to see if this is better than the alternative and 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 looking to figure it out so for them it's typically either the same return purpose or to create an alternative to their job. So a lot of the folks, if you looked at their LinkedIn, they're still marketing execs or, you know, mm-hmm. regular guys. You know. somewhere. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting too, is like, I mean, so is your definition of an independent sponsor versus an acquisition entrepreneur, acquisition entrepreneur is 
more like they're going to probably stay underneath the 5 million enterprise because they can use an SBA loan, maybe some of their 401k or, you know, five, you know, anywhere two to 500 grand to buy a company. It was right. You know, yeah. Versus like, Hey, I need a big pool of equity. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go buy yes. a deal. <laughs> Another great delineation is the size. So like 90% of the actual entrepreneurs are looking for things that should be alone. Independent sponsors are typically larger, but you're seeing a lot of overlap, man. I think, in the current marketplace, what I love is that the lines of demarcation are sort of almost like creeping out like Homer Simpson into the bush. <laughs> because at the end of the day, everybody wants maximum return on the amount of money they're willing to allocate to this particular endeavor. And so whatever mechanism gives them that subject to their personal constraints, financial constraints, and sort of risk appetite, that's where they're going to go. And I think people are seeing that you know, Wall Street will convince you that the only thing that matters is the biggest thing you can do. And I think people are, are are sort of bucking the system on that and saying, no, I think a big thing may be just as troublesome as this job that I have. I might want a smaller thing for a lifestyle business. Well, I mean, Elliot, the things that I totally agree with everything you said. And like the other variables that are uh, pl playing into this that I'm seeing, I got clients and people that I know that are getting insane, like, 20, 30 million dollar all cash offers from private equity firms. And I'm watching it, the big put, you know, these are institutional investors that promise right. a 20% internal rate of return from the pension funds that are already over extended. And so everybody's in this chasing the returns. Yes. And then you yes. got and then you got the Federal Reserve that said, hey, by the way, zero percent interest rates for the next four years or whatever. And it's Dude, like you could not have presented that physically any better. <laughs> I just got off a call about this. It's like a person wants to jump out of like a private equity firm to then go chase private equity returns as an independent private equity guy. And I'm not saying anything about that choice because I, I made it myself, right? So right, if right. Anything, I'm laughing or, or sort of critiquing my own choices. But the reality is like, there's like in the game stuff, like 24 seven, you know, like when you're a private equity person, they're paying you a quarter million and up, you pick up your phone when the MD calls, right? <laughs> like, like, wherever you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you pick up the phone period you pick up the phone <laughs> and and look i think we're all balancing where we want to be money-wise versus life-wise i think it's it's a beautiful thing as this industry matures um it's also sort of like the a democratization of private equity right because it used to be the only way you learn is sort of going and apprenticing under someone that's done it I still think that may be the best way, but there's there's other ways to get pieces of this. And I think there's way more opportunity. There's way more sellers than qualified buyers. Interesting that you say that. And I also like, it's funny because I also see, I, I, think, I think there's just a, a limited amount of qualified buyers and qualified sellers. So then you have this like completely inefficient marketplace, which is the opposite of what we all believe. Because you say, okay, well, you know nothing about selling a business and you know nothing about buying a business. How about we just facilitate an SBA loan for everybody? And then you're just That's like, okay. <laughs> and then get married in 90 days. Yep. Yeah, like, yeah. Actually, isn't there like a some stupid show online where like you just get married on the first date? And that's yeah. Yeah. essentially what it is. And so yeah. it's it, it and I think 
going back to why why are we like laughing around about this if people aren't familiar with this world is because the purpose of the deal and people's motives are driving all this right so the the desire for yield and the return for investors and then for the general partners of private equity firms like Elliot I've said I've I've said like you couldn't pay me to have a hundred million dollar fund right now that I need to spend because I would have to buy what three to $500 million of enterprise value. And I'm going, where yeah. the hell would you find that? Yeah. And, and if you found it, look again, when you owe people a hundred million dollars, you have a <laughs> lot of people you have to pick up the phone for, right? <laughs> yeah. You have a lot of people to come in town for a dinner that you have to go to. And so it, it, it's, it's, it's daunting. And, and look, some people have the heart for it. Some people don't. I mean, I am not a fun guy, but I didn't come out of the fun world. Right. So I, I came out of places, independent sponsor shops and, and, and family offices. And so they, they showed a different kind of sort of investment uh, orientation. It's almost like if you think about Wall Street versus like going to see the greatest show on earth down there in Omaha and watching Charlie and Warren berate all of the Wall Street and San Francisco people, and then they get back on planes and fly home. It, they're all wicked smart, right? Let's not be stupid. And they're all very hard workers. It's just like the orientation towards it feels different. Well, and it's interesting too. And it, like you said, like, it's not that it's things are good or bad. It's just watching the signals of what's going on. And like, so like even, cause I think this will tie in nicely as, as where we're going down your journey of your expertise and things you see is that so like when you hear these all cash offers from private equity firms on insane multiples, right? you're going, okay, these general partners are overpaying for these companies because they need to buy something in order to invest. So they're right. overpaying right? and then they're giving all cash. So the, the risk right. is get, they're assuming more and more risk as the investors, yes. Yes. which is just going to, I, it's okay for the sellers if you're getting that, but what might happen afterwards is something just to be wear, uh, wary of because oh, you're just like, <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> we're not on video, but your face was like all telling, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wish people could see the face. I, I think you're going to exchange the tapes so and maybe they'll see it on my side if not yours. But so the thing that you would say, absolutely, the way that those buyer types treat your company in general will be very different. If I'm if I'm if I'm talking to the buyers or sorry the, the, the owners the sellers in, in the space it's like because of the motivations you asked it very well because of the purpose of the acquisition the action post close sort of go along with that experience doing it willingness to do it impetus to do it and you have to you have to sort of understand that I remember I was uh, I summered at Lynx Partners here and. Um, 200, probably $400 million now, industrial private equity fund. And I saw the owner of this um, waste hauling company that hauled waste from, like there's these intermediary centers in big cities that hold the trash for a little bit and they take it way out to the landfills. Mm -hmm. And he ran from the intermediary places to the landfills. And he sold his business for like 96, well, Link sold the business for 96, whatever, million and he went to like Kinderhook, I think bought them. And you look at this guy, he's like, he's in the seat. He's, he's like happy, but that dude is like, he's practicing to run another marathon. Then that business got sold again. 
And it's just like, you have to know you're, you're running. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. An independent sponsor is not going to have the same staff. And so as a result, oftentimes the changes that they're going to, willing to have time to make are going to be different and, and oftentimes less. You, you It's, yeah, it, it's the purpose of the deal. And every single one of those categories you bring up, you know, you could have a list of 10 people inside of private equity or independent sponsors or family offices, and they're all different. Yes. Every one of them is different. Oh, yes. Yes. And I'm a diligence person. So I, we started the call off with this as funny as getting in here. So finance, particularly alternative investments, particularly direct deals. It's, it's, it's really what I would call like a barbaric sport. Like everyone has sharp elbows, whether they show them to you or not. If somebody is willing and able to put a million, 10 million, a hundred million dollars to work, you should believe they have had all kinds of tough conversations <laughs> and are master negotiators most times. And so what ends up happening, you look at a bunch of different sites that all say, hey, I'm nice, I'm interested in this, I'm, I'm, I'm seller friendly, I'm all these things. And I think we all market ourselves as certain things. I think for the for the owners here, you have to really watch the actions of the people you're dealing with to get a sense on who they're going to be when it matters even more. So one of those actions that you can observe is due diligence, right? (laughs) Which again, like we, like we started off with it's just easy peasy. So, you know, one thing that like, you know, as we teach this stuff in our training, Elliot, it's like these concepts again, just to constantly reiterate is we got enterprise value, which is that purchase price, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it starts Mm -hmm. from the discounted cash flow and then has a premium or not, whatever. So you have this, valuation with a multiple, then you say, okay, then there's equity value after you pay off your debt, keep your cash. So again, enterprise, then equity. Then we have this beautiful thing called net proceeds, which is what is after you get all your money from every part of the deal structure. So just because someone says, Elliot, you know, I'm going to send you like, you know, we talk about all these PE firms or independent sponsors, thousands and thousands of people that are direct mailing or telemarketing these owners trying to get them to sell, yep. circumvent an yep. a, a, a investment banker broker because they don't want to overpay, right? So yes, yep. then you're going to get into this, hey, I'm going to give you 10 million bucks, but that doesn't mean you're getting 10 million all cash. So maybe take it from there and say, okay, what is the process when when someone's bringing you involved, they start to see Elliot. Now, now what happens? <laughs> um, so let's start from acquisition entrepreneurs because we're we're doing a lot of guardian to focus a lot of our new services and um, our business around kind of helping those folks, kind of bridging them from the Walker Dival class to sort of deal execution, which is sort of the the playground that we play in uh, and dominate, in my opinion. And so it starts. Well, people oftentimes use us to help sort of negotiate, um, understand the auctions they're in, understand the sort of psychology of, 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 of sellers. And so we're oftentimes sort of on retainer from people. But the real show starts at the letter of intent. And that's the other side of valuation. So you get a valuation, say it's a million dollar company and somebody's paying $4 million for it. As soon as I get to that number, I put that number in a letter of intent which says, hey, I'm going to pay you four million bucks. Here's how I'm going to pay it. And here's our exclusivity, how long I have the exclusive right to buy your business. Here's when I'm closing. And here's my expectations during diligence. And now the game starts. <laughs> I like you, know, you get this smirk on your face because <laughs> you're on the buy side, right? 
And so yeah. what I've heard, I'm for some reason feeling super sarcastic today. So like for for what I've heard constantly in my own experience is that the deal price always goes up after due diligence. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Dude, yeah. you should just end the whole podcast there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Exclamation point. Yeah. In parentheses, psych. Oh, so, my God. And the reason I did just say that is there was, like, I mean, the amount of times. I mean, it's every week, Elliot. Hey, Ryan, uh, been listening to your podcast for years. Or there's someone like in our groups and, and just great people that, hey, I got this LOI. And I'm like, did you sign it? Yeah. I'm like. Well, just that's it. There's there's no reason to talk to anybody anymore because like you've signed it. Yeah, <laughs> the deal train's going. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 on. And and keep in mind, I feel that you're representing sellers and I more represent buyers. And typically, there's like this huge tension in between the two. But I've started my own business several times, so I've sat in both seats. So although my primary seat is on the buy side now, I, I've sat in the other seat um, owning a company. And raising capital so it, it's not like this shark in the water looking at these fish it's that this is the game so i talk to people a lot about the the pain the seller takes during diligence right is the additional cost they have to endure to sell their business and that's just it the reality is if somebody's bringing four million dollars in in, in 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 duffel bags to your house yes you have to endure some pain to get there and that's that's just that. I think a lot of people do use diligence as a way to ratchet down pricing. And I think yeah. that that goes back into diligencing your buyers mm-hmm. and seeing if they are who they say they are and are other people who have dealt with them, do they concur? But the other reality is if your business is clean, you kept good books, you've been, I'm not saying perfect. I'm just saying almost like good plus because the, the businesses here typically look we, we, private business owners there's going to be personal expenses there's going to be stuff in there that doesn't negate consistent cash flow it's just do you have a system of controls in this business from a financial perspective that i can trust do you have bank statements financials taxes back are the stories that you need to tell about things that are odd reasonable and and, and for me a big piece is how quickly i get data mm, yep it's one of those muscle memories. When I get data slow, I know it's bad. <laughs> like, oh man, you hit on so many things. Um, so let's talk about, um, it, you know, with the LOI, you know, because what I've said countless times, and actually even before the LOI, I just mentioned and on like you said, like the shark in the water and buyers and sellers, and you're so right. And like I say that tongue in uh, cheek because like the reality is a lot of buyers will be sellers and sellers will yes. be buyers. And like yes. a lot of people, when they learn the stuff in our training, they're like, well, I should just go use this to buy companies until I eventually sell. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. of course, because now you understand the real game, right? right? It's the matrix, the zeros and ones. Now you finally get it. So like when you get the LOI, the deal trains going. And so now let's say in that LOI, let's just take a $10 million enterprise sure. value. You say, okay, yeah. whatever the multiple is going to be, maybe we make up an EBITDA number of 2 million bucks. Sure. So you say, okay, that's what you put in the LOI and explain like why you hold true that you're, it's not going up. Like you put your expectations in there. So when people, the worst thing you can do is sign one and then say, what should I do now? <laughs> and it's just, yeah, I see it every day. So the way I respond to that is twofold. The first, a little off 
the second spot on to what you said. So the other thing about buyers and sellers and why there's a really good counterbalance is that if I'm the buyer and I egregiously upset the seller, I absolutely need the seller for a period of one to two years after the acquisition. And as much as an employment agreement of, you know, a quarter million dollars might sound like a lot of money. If I just gave him 10 million bucks, he doesn't have to show up for a quarter million bucks. And so another mitigant for that tension is that what you want, it's going to be a good negotiation, right? We're going to both sort of feel like we could have got a little bit more, but we need to work together because the, the, even at closing, the seller's going to know the business 10 times better than the buyer. And so you need that person to be on your side. Now I'll go to your diligence question um, or LOI question. So you put 10 million in the LOI, but I might say, look, I need a seller note of 2 million or seller rollover of 2 million. I'm going to hold a million in escrow to make sure all these promises that you're going to make in the purchase agreement are true. And so what you should expect is the, the 10 minus the two of sort of some sort of seller financing minus the one of escrow. So now you're going to get $7 million of cash at close and $3 million are going to come at some period that we're going to define probably in the purchase agreement. And so your letter of intent says that. The other thing is, to your point, why you shouldn't sign it and then call Ryan and say, hey, what do I do now? Is that <laughs> there's certain parts of the letter of intent that are binding. So for instance, if you accept offer A for 10 million bucks and then a week later offer B comes for 11, you're going to, oh, I'm tearing this letter up and selling to the guy that's bringing 11. Well, you legally can't do that. You can Excuses, wait it out yeah. for 90 days. You can try to get um, the, the, the buyer to um, get out of the letter, but they have no incentives to. And, and so you really want to make sure that you're comfortable. Here's the other thing. Because of that 90-day exclusivity and also the, 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 the signal it gives to the market, particularly if the same intermediary is representing it, if you find that like a company has been to the altar three or four times and hasn't consummated and the broker calls me with that deal, A, I know the seller has deal fatigue. B, there's something in there where that dog's not hunting. And so the valuation to me might go from 10 to now nine, because I just know there's, I know there's a million dollars of stuff in there. Stuff, just you name it, junk drawer, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's the, the letter of intent. Really, if, if I had, you know, 30 seconds to look at it when I do quick reviews, price, structure, exclusivity, and what is the valuation based on working capital? To me, well, those are the main things. And, and I think just, you know, where the LOI and whatever process the, the seller is using and or on the buyer side, right? Like it's all like, again, we're talking about two sides of the same coin is yeah. if you like on the $10 million deal, let's take, so you got a million or 2 million seller note, one, you know, a seller note is that 10 year seller note or is it a two year? Is it a 10% right. interest rate or is it a 2% interest rate? Yes. And then, Have I defined much, any of that at all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, or how much is an employment contract versus an earnout versus like escrow? You, do I so get my much. earnout if I'm no longer an employee? Yeah. So like when I, when I, the reason I bring that up is like, if you're, if you get a random LOI from a random buyer, which is good for the buyer, but the, you know, the point is to have two parties that exchange a good value back and forth. And like, yeah. so like, if you have this, you know, $10 million purchase price, you could have three deals that all have a $10 million purchase price, but completely different deal structures 
So if you yes. don't go, if you don't have a controlled auction to sell it, you're right. going to have no idea how to compare a $10 million. And then if you're the buyer, you know, maybe explain on the buy side, how the, cause that's where you're, you're residing most of the time is where, how the discussions happen, Elliot, of how you're put presenting those deal structures compared to others in the competition, whether you're in competition or you're not, how that impacts sure. what you're doing. Sure. So a couple of things come to play specifically if you're, if you're structuring a deal should sort of be an ideal structure for this given um, transaction. So if I'm a buyer, the first thing I'm looking at is how am I going to finance this deal? And so when we talk about a $2 million EBITDA going at five times so for $10 million, I know that I'm probably going to get between two and three times in mezzanine debt, best case. So there's 6 million bucks that I can get in debt. If I want to invest a million dollars, so six plus one, I'm at seven. So unless I want to put more equity in, $7 million is the maximum cash that I can deliver at closing, which means I have a $3 million hole that typically is going to get filled with seller financing. That's probably the simplest. I could go on all kinds of permutations of that. The other thing that comes into play, okay, so that's buyer-centric structuring. There's also deal-centric structuring, meaning um, uh, this $10 million company has 60% customer concentration. And although the seller wants to offload that risk to me at close, I don't want to take it. And so I'm going to peg the EBITDA at blah. And as long as the customer sticks around for 12 or 18 months, then I'm going to pay out the money towards the 10 million. If that customer goes, I'm probably bankrupt. And then that money's not going to get paid. But that's that risk sharing of that's in a situation where there's concentration and there's tens of other situations where you need to structure around a particular thing. I, I absolutely love how you just put that buyer centric structures versus deal centric. And they're both in play at the right. same time. So technically even, so if you think about like, if you don't have a controlled auction, so if you're selling to a third party or the seller and you don't have 10 options, you, you, right. You don't have any of these. You just have one person that's got their own personal buyer centric, uh, you know, scenarios and your company and the risk of your cash flow that all get put together. And and it's your job to assess the risk, right? I mean, like that's what, so you're assessing the purchase price and the deal structure. How do you balance those two, Elliot? So if you're saying, okay, risk at the cash, we're going back to the $10 million. Let's say it's 2 million in EBITDA, $10 million enterprise. We're being, you and I both know that that's a very conservative purchase price at this point. It might be more right. like 20 million because yeah, exactly. of the deals. Exactly. But, and if it's in San Francisco, 50, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't even need to make any money if you're in California. No, no we're, we're going off of revenue, guys. <laughs> yeah, pre-revenue. No. no. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, you know, it's blending the two of like, okay, purchase oh, price, man. value of the bit of the business enterprise value, and then the deal structure. Both of those are ways of understanding risk and quantifying it. So how do you balance those two when you're looking at it with the deals with the buyers? That's a great question. And so it's actually spot on for Guardian. So what we're working on and we'll be launching in Q1 is, so typically what a buyer will do is assess the, the, the business sort of before LOI to put an LOI together. But oftentimes, the structure needs to evolve during diligence because 
there's things that you're learning that you didn't know before. And so when you're thinking about sort of price and then structure, how do I balance? Mm-hmm. A couple of things. So so price has a lot of pride in it as well. Most of the people who are selling companies are, are already doing well without the, the money from the business, particularly when you get to sort of that $10 million level. Do they want the money? Oh, absolutely. They want the money, but they want to go to the country club. They want to tell their neighbors. They want, you know, they want to talk about the multiple they got that was higher. They want to talk about the purchase price that was higher. They want to talk about how they outdid the dude that last had the story that everybody wanted to listen to. And so sometimes you have to give a person a price and then structure down to what you're going to pay them. <laughs> and, and, and that's a compromise, right? Right. Well, and like, and like, just like, maybe we can give some examples. We've weaved them in and out, but like, okay, so $10 million and then, you're going to have, instead of $2 million seller financing, you're going to have maybe $1 million seller financing and $2 million additional in an earn out based on that large customer. So, and it's so funny you bring that up, Elliot, is like the country club. Because like when we say like $10 million valuation, we're always like, here are the next four questions. How many partners did you have? How much debt did you have? And how much did you walk away with? And like, well, 400 grand. Well, they're not going to go right. brag about that at the golf yeah, club. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And so that's the, that's the game, the smart deal makers. And I've seen, I've seen some amazingly smart things done on the buy side that actually solved the problem on the sell side. And both people, I think one, although if you were in a business school classroom, you may, you may hail the the buyer or the seller as the winner, but if it was important enough for one of the parties to negotiate for it in a fairly negotiated transaction, then I, I think they got it right. So price that piece, then there's risk. And so what I was talking about with Guardian, we're coming out with a quality of deal that's sort of in addition to quality of earnings, where you sort of look at a, a trailing 12 month and last three years, what you really need to look at is the next 12 months and next three years. Why is that? Because you're kicking the seller out of the company. He's the one who created this thing, knows everything, knows where the buyers are buried. You didn't close any of the customer relationships. You need to understand those, get those. There's a salesperson in there that has them, that if he leaves, that's a lot of risk. You're gonna put a lot of debt on the business. So now you need to report on that debt and be cognizant of it. And you are a brand new, either manager or advisor in the business you've never created. And none of the employees owe their mortgage, their kids college or anything to you. And so the EBITDA you can expect in the next 12 months can be very different than what you expect in the last 12 and how we're going to start communicating that as a quality of deal in addition to quality of earnings, because the risk to kind of bring it back to your question, the business might be worth 10 million bucks, but I got to pay off my debt with the EBITDA and cash flows coming out of it next 12 months. And I need to prepare for a series of downside things that may occur because the last thing I want to be doing is going and talking to my banker in the first quarter after I close about why I can't make my payment. So the risk is really around the next 12 months and the value is about kind of the last, right? There's, there's, some, there's some interwovenness there, but you have to think about, because you have to win the auction to get the opportunity to buy the business. So you have to sort of pay up to whatever price is gonna be the highest price. But then you actually have to live with the business and pay off your investors. And so, a lot of times structure is a way to get there. 
it's it's so interesting, Elliot. Like I didn't grow up in this world of finance and like the even the schooling that you got. And as I've learned this over the last seven years, it's like truly the, the I I called it on one of my episodes. I can't remember which one. It was like this Venn diagram where you have operations and all these founders who have grown even up to like you talking, it could be a million to a couple hundred million in revenue, sure. just owner operator, understand their market, they're competitive, but you know, you're talking about carried interest and general partnership and fund one fund two and all these different ways and like earnouts yes. and employment account. You just never understood finance, which yeah. is really how the game is played where you realize that these people are buying companies with other people's money. Right. Yeah. And you just, you just like, it's just a, such a huge gap in the market. So the, when you're going back to the Venn diagram, it's like the owner operators that understand finance too, yes. or the world or the private equity firms who actually understand how to run a company. Right. You intersect those and that's where some insane magic happens. That's the other thing. You sometimes have to be a little light and humble in this process to be smart. And, and I'm coming from the school of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, because that's kind of where I live. But mm -hmm. when we're talking about financial forecasts, let's just be completely honest. We are predicting the future, Ryan. How'd that work out in 2020, Elliot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know nobody is out here showing off the model they built in December of 2019 for their 2020 expected cash flow, right? So are, is Ryan better than... Elliot at predicting the future through cash, you know, like you have to have some humility there. Um, the other piece is that um, there's a lot of things that sort of a, a buyer can do to screw things up. And, 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 and that's part of this game too. You know, these guys that are playing these games, not playing this game, these guys that are buying companies with other people's money, it's, on some ways, it's the most complex financial thing to do. In other ways, it's no more difficult than me buying a, a mortgage with 30% down, 70% uh, note, knowing that there's going to be, you know, things that are going to come to the community that are going to up my price. And, and knowing that, you know, in the worst case scenario, I can pay off the $70,000 with some retirement thing. And so it, it, my undergrad is engineering, right? And so I got really frustrated when I was at Accenture. To your comment, like people sometimes think, oh, he's a Harvard MBA. He's been in private equity for 10 years. He must've grew up on this. No, I came out of um, undergrad at Georgia Tech, went to Accenture to do strategy consulting and the financial stuff came up and I'm asking, hey, why would you look at return on assets versus return on equity? Why are we looking at net income, you know, versus EBITDA versus operating profit? What's the difference? how do I calculate some of these cash flow um, improvement projects we were trying to push out in 2008, 2009 during the downturn? And they were like, oh, that's, I can't really explain it to you, Elliot. You need to go to business school for that. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm an engineer. <laughs> if there's something mathematical you can't explain to me, somebody is lying. <laughs> I love it. It's so true, right? And by the way, I've not, anybody that, any engineer I've ever come across, they usually deliver me a spreadsheet with pivot tables and VLOOKUPs that I'm not familiar with. So yes. Like, yeah. yes, yes. And so to that complexity point, I've actually taught some of my uh, friends from Georgia Tech, sort of like an MBA in a weekend to kind of bring them up to speed. Probably similar to what you're doing in your community, right? You, you have a heart for a certain type of people that like, Look, when you're a scientist, an engineer, your, your understanding and ability to 
work with numbers is just as strong as any Wall Street banker at the core. The thing is their language that they have used for their you know, adult professional life is different than yours. But I tell people all the time, like finance is addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. So at a certain point, you know, you can get there if you want to get there. But I think both of us sort of had a process of like this long vocabulary of private equity terms we've been spewing back and forth. And sorry, anybody who doesn't understand them, but like, this is, this is the language of this business. So when you're going in to kind of looping back and about price structure and deal structure, and then how to understand the risk. So let's say you say, okay, you know what? This is a $10 million business. I, right. You know, that's it's going to pass the country club ego pride valuation. And it's, right. a, you know, on the, on the surface, good industry, good up potential upside. Now, all right, Elliot, I'm hiring you. We're, got, we're diving into due diligence to see if we can service the debt and I can get the value that I want out of this. Sure. What's the process? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so I look at very specific things to understand what, how those things will affect the expectations for cash flow going forward. So, and I mentioned some of them, but I'll just kind of rattle them off. So how committed is the seller post-close to your deal? Which is a function of if they're, if they're in Johnson, South Carolina, right? And their last name is Johnson and their cousin is the mate, they're probably staying around and that business being functional is gonna be very important to them you probably have a winner on, on, on seller being sort of committed to the outcome of the business. If your guy has on a big diamond pinky ring and has three houses in Bermuda, <laughs> complete opposite, right? And so from a risk perspective and, and, and next year's cash flow perspective, you need to recognize that any sort of blip is gonna be hard to get that guy. Um, if a person all cash offers, you talked about those, every buyer wants one, just give me a full cash. Every 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 seller wants one. Every buyer wants 100% earnout, right? And we fight. But if if I've got 30% seller financing, I'm way more comfortable that the seller is going to be around to to continue. And so that that goes into my risk. The other thing that I use to sort of help understand next year's cash flow is how diverse is the customer base, how strong is the value proposition relative to customers, how well perceived are these products or services in the market. Um, the, the head of sales, who is the head of sales? Is the owner the head of sales and is the head of sales that really isn't the head of sales or is the head of sales entitled the real head of sales? And that guy, if he's delivering 80% of the revenue, what are the golden parachute things that I put into place to keep him? Because I talked to a guy yesterday who bought a company. He was an acquisition entrepreneur, very smart guy, but it's hard to like, Think about all the risks. He bought the company day two, the head of sales comes in and says, hey, you're gonna boost my salary by 100% and give me a bonus. And you know why? Because otherwise I'm gonna take 70% of your business somewhere else. And he had to pay him, right? It was painful, the whole thing. And, and we don't like, I don't like considering these sort of messy outcomes, but you ask how do you deal with sort of next year's risk and calculations, you have to think about what are the five or 10 things that could go wrong that would cause you catastrophic risk and how sure are you that they won't happen? That, that's essentially it. What are, um, 
what is the, like the common things that pop up for you? I mean, I've got my own list. I'm just curious from all your experience. What are the, what are the short, what's the short list of things that the gotchas? Yeah. So first thing is ad backs. Um, every broker seller is going to come with ad backs. My, my favorite to talk about are the absentee uh, owner sellers and I hear it all the time from like first year looking for deal folks who are like, oh, but the seller says he's absentee. So we're going to add his salary back to the to the EBITDA and then put a multiple on it. But like, no, he's got a, he's got a house in Aspen. He's, he spends all his time. He's never at the business. And I keep asking him, so how do you know that? How do you test that? You know, because now we're not just talking about propensity for this guy to be at the company, but we're also talking about a number that you're going to multiply times five that are two million to 10 million, five X multiple. And so he has a huge incentive to tell you he's absentee. Um, what else do I see? Working capital challenges. So on smaller, smaller deals, call it under 3 million bucks. The seller is going to want to keep the AR and I don't care what you say. And I don't care what fancy business school hat you want to put on to go tell him that that's not earned revenue that he hasn't received in cash yet. That's what he calls it. He does not call that account. <laughs> <laughs> it's cash that's in other people's bank accounts. He calls that's that mine. my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I failed on that before. I, I, I bring it up because that's issue. What else is an issue? Um, oftentimes you'll find um, sort of concentration. The first one is customer concentration, but that's typically um, sort of handled. The The other ones you find is sort of vendor concentration or like employee concentration, like somebody knows too much and now they become sort of mission critical and you got to watch out for them. What else do you find in diligence? Generally, you'll find that the accounting in these businesses is terrible. <laughs> We've spun up an entire business this year after our training and our boot camps. People were like, Hey, we need some help. And I'm like, You have no one around you that can help you. And they're like, I mean, and literally we get tax returns or just income statements. And yeah. people are like, Wait, what? Three statements? Yeah. What do you mean three <laughs> normalized EBITDA? And and again, I I know it because I've worked for family businesses where it took me nine months to get their QuickBooks in order to be able to go get the financing we needed to go consummate a deal because their stuff was so bad. And it wasn't like the company didn't clear like 25 million in revenue and 5 million in EBITDA. It wasn't lack of resources. They had an accounting firm, but when I talked to them, they were like, we do taxes and that's it. Nobody checks them. So we don't really look at them either. What do you want to know? Now, did you now make any money? Deciphered, you know, conversation. They don't say it explicitly. I'm totally. You go, you go to page four of those taxes and ask them the top number, how they get there. You see really quick <laughs> how much work they did. <laughs> so you have to be comfortable there because you find stuff. Um, you find assets that um, are either in the business and not on the balance sheet or sort of on the balance sheet that shouldn't be in the business. You also can find, and this is kind of in the messy sort of this, um, people play, in the downside scenario, people can play a lot of games with, with inventory and capital expenditures. So when you move inventory around, you think it's just a balance sheet item, um, but because it affects cash flow, revenue, and, and costs so much, 
you really have to be sure that you, if you, if there's inventory that's material in the business that you both understand it and you probably should lay eyes on it. Um, CapEx because, um, and then Ryan knows as well, and without being audited, the choices you make around, is that a business expense that hits EBITDA or a balance sheet capitalized expense that doesn't even affect EBITDA? That, that choice in a business that has, you know, basic level financials can be troublesome and you need to sort of back up what's right. Those are the areas that I see sort of the most hiccups in it. Well, <clears throat> what's really interesting, Elliot, is, and I want to, because I know we're going to be running short on time here and is getting back to how you mitigate some of these things with deal structures, but just a comment is like all of these things, it's just like, as a buyer, you're just trying to understand the story, right? Like, yeah. okay, if I want to buy your company, Elliot, like what kind of guy is Elliot? What kind of leadership team does he have? How is he generating the income and the, and the cash flow? And do we trust him? And then there's yeah. all this finance and all these things just to understand the trust that I have in you so we can transfer this risk and this value. And it's just so crazy because like, you know, the people that have signed that LOI that want to, you know, Hey, how do I do this? It's like, you need, you need years to build that story. Right? Right. And it goes back to your, your point of like, if, if it takes a long time to get the data, you know, they're creating the story on the fly because they want their cash all up front. And like yeah. the thing is, is, you already know it's total bullshit. So yeah. let's just just call it what it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, because I've been on the creator of bullshit side too. <laughs> yes. So then, as you're spotting people's whether, you know, and again, I think there's even like in between here, Elliot. We're like they could be telling the truth, but right. then you go back to how do I know that, right? And that's probably the biggest unfortunate situation, which I think you and I are both trying to solve. We're like. You have a good person that wants and is telling the truth, but they didn't right. do this work right. to get the value because you're still saying, I believe you, Ryan, right. but like, I'm not yep. going to give you an extra 2 million up front. Sorry. Yeah. And, and Ryan, so that's where I live. That's where guardian due diligence lives. That's what we do. So how do we mitigate risk? So I calculate risk in sort of two main buckets, like catastrophic, like deal breaker risk and non-deal breaker risk. And then I think about malicious sort of intent risk. And I didn't know, I couldn't reasonably know risk. And so catastrophic is like if revenue's off 30%, if you're on the rocks with your top two customers, if your salesperson just bought a house in another city, if there's an environmental issue under the building, sort of like deal breaker risk. So you mm-hmm. go there first because Diligence processes, when they're done right, are structured. And so you knock out the most potentially catastrophic things first, because if you hit a wall at one of those, you stop. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The other thing you have to mitigate is sort of, so now you have catastrophic. Catastrophic means you stop the deal. Non-catastrophic means you adjust the price or terms. So now you're into the non-catastrophic risk and there's there's hundreds. And what what you really look at is like per each industry, there's, probably a set of 10 things that drive, you know, 80% of the sort of fluctuation in business. And so if you're good in the industry, you know, which things those are guardian seeing so many deals at this point, we know what those 10 things are in most industries. Um, and then there's deal related 10 things, right. That every deal maker knows. So, so guardian having gone through all of these deals and different people structuring, you sort of put your 10 deal things with the 10 industry things and non catastrophic. And now you're sort of through, with the 
kind of, we might not do this deal risk. Mm -hmm. Now there's sort of this calculation of, because I need to trust sort of the holistic quality of this business as, as presented by the seller, I need to understand if, if they said inventory was a million and it's really 400,000, was that somebody who really wanted to be a million dollar inventory and paid a million dollars for it that hadn't realized it had depreciated to $400,000 and just made a mistake? Or is this sort of the third malicious, purposeful misinformation given? Because the good companies, the data comes quick, the answers are honest. If it's not good, they tell you. Um, and you kind of, to your point, you gain trust. The bad ones, data is slow. People, you know they have the data because if you're a business owner, you've actually been in QuickBooks, you've actually been in your taxes, so you know there's data available that they're saying they don't have or slow. And then stories start not matching. So it was this reason on day one and then day 20, it's some other thing. And I think the, the way that I learned how to do diligence was kind of amazing because part of it is like the financial stuff, you're in the data room checking those, those things out. Part of it is to your point is I'm going to spend three days with, with Ryan, the seller. And if I come with a notebook and a list of 50 questions, he's going to hate me. And, and if he hates me, then I don't get the great deal terms. So I remember coming to my first couple of deals with my notebook and my list. And I, you know, I only want to have 25. So I pulled the six and seven out that weren't as good. And I had my list and I walked into the, the seller room and my mentor would go through a conversation that would last eight hours. It will sometimes be painful because like, it felt like it was nothing, but he was an NBA JD and a good poker player. And he was like, I need to see what this guy's eyes look like when he's telling the truth, when he's lying, when he's confident. And the way I do that is um, I'm asking similar questions, different ways through a long course of time to kind of see what's going on. and. Um, it took me a long time to learn how to do that, but that's what you're also trying to see is sort of when you get somebody relaxed, you know, it's almost like, you know, you want to go get the guy a couple of beers and you're hanging out and kind oh, of for sure. It's uh, someone years ago on the show said you get someone in, you know, everybody can bullshit you for like three hours. You can't anything after that. You started to get to the, the true nature of who people are. And, and that's why some of these props like processes and buyers that keep talking about how efficient they are and how our, our whole lives are, oh, well, I don't want to call the guy and sit down with them. I can just Zoom with them because I don't have to travel. Look at the efficiency. I saved 2000 bucks. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the 50 and 60-year-old deal people, and they're just like, man, next, yeah. <laughs> right? But but people are doing this, and it's like, I don't I don't know. I'm sure in 10 years to be somebody here sitting like, here's how you deliver diligence on Zoom, mm -hmm. you know, but right now you, you can't get past that. And here's the thing, even if you don't like some things you, you find out about the guy, you might not like his political affiliation. I can tell you I've been on the road and that's been the case. <laughs> Just a couple of those scenarios in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And long before, I mean, I was right. looking at deals when Obama was in the presidency and I had to eat 10 minutes of Obama bashing. <laughs> several days uh, <laughs> in my pursuit and, and the business was still great. And I think the seller was still reasonable. He just had a thing. He was Upset. mad about that day. Um, we all have them. And so you got to sort of, 
manage that. And there's, there's, there's certain things that you can do in person that are really hard to mimic in other ways. And diligence is, is putting it all together. I don't know if you ever read the book Buyout by Rick Rickerson. I have not. Oh, oh. Ooh, I love it. One of the best depictions of diligence and almost anybody I am in a deal with on the buy side has to read is their, um, their, their, their chapter called Avoid Deal Hell that's about diligence. And it tells an elaborate story with all kinds of detail about a young um, Rick Rickerson and his big private equity firm doing the first deal he was running, going to like Iowa or somewhere to buy a manufacturing company. And if you've been to Iowa and if you've been in a manufacturing facility, you know how the owners look. You know, they are blue collar jeans, maybe some cowboy boots. (laughs) This guy had a pinky ring and he was like, that's kind of weird. That's off. And he let it slide. And there were two or three other things that were just off given like where he was in the business he was in. Right. Um, Like, I think he went, he, after drinks with the guy, it was funny that the, the, the owner and the controller got in the same car, drunk together to leave. He's like, that's kind of weird. And two or three other things, and he missed it. And the deal ended up being a bust. And it, it always comes back to like that pinky ring. So I always talk to people about like, there's nothing wrong with the pinky ring. Like if you're in New York or like Texas, some places, like people are gonna have gaudy stuff, but if you're, it's like, which, which one of these things doesn't go with the other one? <laughs> like, almost like sesame. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a great story. One of these things is not like the other. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and and it's so funny. Like as we're, I I, we could keep going on for a long time, but uh, we'll have to wrap it up. up, Yeah, yeah. but it's like, it's the whole thing of commerce. Like I've just, I've gone down this monetary and fiscal policy rabbit hole this year with Ray Dalio, and you just name it. And it's just this concept of money that I just freaking love, Elliot. And all it is is a buyer and a seller trying to change yeah. hands on an yes. agreed upon value That's period. It. And the reality That's is it. we have to trust each other. That's it. And it, like money yes. is based in yes. trust. The exchange of money yes. is based yes. in trust. Yes. And, and yes. like the, so due diligence is just a validation of that trust, the people, the deal, the industry, and like all these things are just a way of understanding what that is. And it just, it's so interesting. And I'm curious in your comments on this story that I heard, and I love it is this one uh, uh, seller who he'll know if he's listening in is that, you know, all cash offer very large dollar amount. He just said, you know, I just, I just wanted, you know, everybody says I can ring the bell and I can finally win. And I just looked at him. I said, you're just changing how your net worth is structured. Your company is already worth that. It's just all in one asset. And I said, you're not used to having a huge multi-million dollar pile of cash. Right now, your company's worth that. Well, what's weird is this, it's like they think they can get one over on the buyer. Like, dude, like right. these people are a thousand times smarter than what's going on. So it's worth right. what they're willing to pay for it. And so your net worth right. is already worth that. So there's this big chasm I see, Elliot, and understanding that. I don't know. You know, there is, and I, I use analogies a lot. Um, the one that I think is most relevant here is you go buy a car from your neighbor down the street and they say they have perfect details about oil changes, but they don't have the paperwork. They um, haven't done, haven't had any energy problems the whole time. They changed the tires. They, they kept it clean. Most people don't buy it until you take it to your mechanic to check it out. 
if you're if you're really good, even if you go to the used car lot, unless there's a warranty and the guy says all these kind of things about the car, you still take it to your mechanic to check it out. It's because once that transaction is consummated, there's no take backs. And so the propensity for the person to misrepresent the truth is so high. I talk a lot about sellers at the time of transaction have one of the highest motivations to, to tell a story is the way I say it, because each dollar of story gets them four to six to whatever times that in dollars. And so in that intense environment, you really want to be sure that each dollar is actually true EBITDA, true cash flow. And that's why you come to Guardian Due Diligence to make sure that you're not buying a lemon. <laughs> CarMax, right? Like they're like I just got done reading Donald Miller's story brand again for the thousandth time. And and uh it's all about mitigating that issue of trust. Right. I mean, like, how can you understand it? This has been an absolute blast, Elliot. All right. So this is cool. I have like three or four emails I need to send you about (laughs) stuff that we need to talk about, including Ray Dalio. Oh, yeah. And changing world order, man. I've read every single freaking word of that. I love it. Um, So two questions before we wrap up. One is uh, best place to get in touch with you, Guardian, all the contact, all the other blogs and podcasts you've been on. Sure. So guardiandudiligence.com. Uh, do is DUE for those who might not be experts <laughs> and uh, LinkedIn, Elliot Holland, uh, two L's, two T's. I'm very responsive there. My email and phone number are on my website, so you can find it there. And if you remember my name more than my business, you can go to elliot-holland.com and find me there too. Awesome. And then last question is because of the podcast title, the what does the word intentional mean for you? planned, allocated time and energy and resources for executed. I love it. Elliot, man, this has been an absolute blast. I'm so happy that Tyler introduced us. Dude, absolutely. I'll send you some emails later on. Have an amazing day. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you are ready to play the game. (laughs) I think uh, barbaric sport is one of the best ways to describe buying and selling a business. And, you know, a couple big takeaways are lots of technical things that Elliot and I discussed. And the technical things are important. And those are truly the rules of the game. Your strategy has to be layered on top of the rules that everybody's playing. So you understanding, truly understanding what's going on is crucial for you to be able to walk onto that field and buy a company or sell a company and not have a bunch of regrets afterwards because you knew what you were giving up every step of the way as you make decisions and choices that are in front of you because you understood the game you were playing. And the last takeaway to layer on top of that is once you understand the rules, you can then better assess the people that are playing the game because it's such a high stakes game. The people around it have an incentive to manipulate, deceive, lie, cheat, you name it. Doesn't mean people do it, like I've said, but you can spend the time that's necessary assessing those people. If you're buying a company, you need to assess the trust in the data that the seller is giving you and their team and their plan and their numbers. If you're the seller, You need to better assess the buyer, what they're saying, what they're promising, what their team is promising, and truly trust or not trust what they're saying. You have to use your human intuition that has gotten you this far 
And the only way to spend the necessary mental time and energy and intuition on the right things, you have to better understand the game so that way you can delegate it to your team or just understand it and not have to learn on the fly and spend the time assessing the trust and truly the risk of the deal and the transaction that you're involved in. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the Intentional Growth course. Go to arcona.io. And if you have not, give the show a rating on iTunes. I highly appreciate it. It helps me get more guests on and get more exposure, which I want to then take and bring more value to you, the listeners. Thanks again, and I will see you next week.